Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We're Talking Business Now with Stacia Guzzo, the creator of Smarty Pits, a product that she literally started on her kitchen stove and now has in major retailers across the country. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Stacia talks with us about the circumstances that led to her entrepreneurial leap and how she developed a brand that still may be young, but is growing a large following. Welcome, Stacia. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, Smarty Pits, love the name. Tell us about what it is. Sure. So we're an aluminum-free deodorant. We're also free of parabens, phthalates, propylene glycol, Um, It's basically a safe and effective alternative to aluminum-based antiperspirants on the market. And you started this product on your stove, right? Why did you decide to start making it? The deodorant is inspired by my mom. I started making it uh, after she had breast cancer. She's a survivor. And when she discovered the lump, it was directly underneath her armpit. We had no family history of breast cancer. Um, There was no genetic predisposition to it. Uh, The doctors at the time actually told her they thought it was most likely influenced by something in her environment, Mm. but they couldn't say what. So uh, I started to do some research uh, to learn a little bit more about some of the factors that might have influenced the tumor. And that was the first time I learned that aluminum and antiperspirants had been cited as a possible risk factor in some studies for both breast cancer and Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, So that was the, the sort of tipping point for me and trying to figure out a way to eliminate one of the risk factors in my life. So I tried to go aluminum-free, but I was a clinical strength antiperspirant user, and I was a high school teacher at the time. I needed something that worked well with my body, and Mm -hmm. nothing on the market did. So that ultimately led me to getting into cosmetic formulation and creating a formula that worked for my body, and now that has worked for hundreds of thousands of other people. So you literally self-taught. You didn't work with any chemists or any industry scientists or anything like that. This was really a trial and error type of activity that was taking place, was playing out in your kitchen for several weeks or months. How long did it take you? Uh, well, it was actually, the, the journey itself was over the course of a few years. The longer version of that story is when I tried to find a product that worked with me and nothing did, I actually gave up for a little bit because I didn't have any background. And like I said, I was a teacher. I didn't, I didn't know there was an alternative for me uh, to find something that would be aluminum-free and work for my skin chemistry. But a few years later, uh, my husband and I moved out to a more rural area. There weren't any teaching jobs, and I got pregnant shortly after. And I was home, and I've always been somebody that has um, been, you know, I just like my hands busy. I'm a creative person. And I started formulating skincare as a hobby. And so that, that was the beginning of the journey. started with me making lip balms and soaps and lotions. Lip balms and soaps are relatively easy to learn how to make. And I was just having fun doing it and, you know, making it for my friends for gifts. And, and ultimately then it ended up uh, selling them at, you know, local craft fairs and farmer's markets, things like that. And I began to get more and more interested, did uh, my own courses online in skin chemistry and skin care traveled to a few different places to learn some in-person skincare. But all of that was, like I said, soap and lotion making and things like that. Mm-hmm. After a couple of years, I was adept enough at creating my own formulations that I returned to the problem that I originally had, which was finding a deodorant that worked for me. 
so from that point, I said, uh, you know, I've done this long enough. I've learned enough about skin chemistry and what all of these different ingredients can do, and I'm going to give it a shot. And even though that first formulation, it worked well and it sold well, but there were still things that could be improved. It was a little bit stiff. I wanted it to glide a little bit better. And so then over the next couple of years after that, I continued to refine it based on customer feedback until ultimately we got the formula that, uh, that I have today. As you said, you were taking it to farmer's markets, and I assume it was those first customers that gave you that feedback then, the ones that uh, you were able to actually talk to while you were at the farmer's market there that you could actually communicate with directly. Right, yeah. So I was I was selling at farmer's markets and I was selling, I had an Etsy shop. So it was, you know, it was very humble beginnings in terms of just getting the, the word out there. And I would have customers return and give me feedback, um, but they liked the way the deodorant worked enough that they continued to come back and purchase. And soon enough, they were coming back and calling me the deodorant lady. <laughs> so deodorant quickly you know, out, out uh, sold all of my other products to the point where eventually that ended up becoming the only thing I sold because I was so busy making deodorant that I didn't have as much time to make the soaps and the lotions and the lip balms anymore. And I really enjoyed um, being able to have such positive feedback from customers saying, you know, this, this product is actually changing my life. It's making me feel safer. It's making me feel more comfortable. They had stories like mine where nothing had ever worked for them. So that became very fulfilling for me. Let's talk about that inflection point where you start out uh, very grassroots, going to local markets and fairs and, and really have that opportunity to talk directly with your customers face-to-face, get their feedback, and then it starts to take off to the point that first you can't devote any time to the other products that you were making because the deodorant was outselling them so fast and you had to ramp up production. And it sounds like at that point that you were a production line of one. It was just you making it. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, when I was selling it at farmer's markets, we were making it basically out of of my house on my stovetop and mm-hmm. it was very small. I did have uh, somebody that would come and help me part-time and my husband would help on the weekends and we were doing, you know, labeling at night before we went to bed and it was sort of all consuming. But soon enough, once once things really began to take off and, and it made sense, I ended up moving into the warehouse that I have now and I hired more people. And uh, and since then, it's really been the, the biggest challenge has been to keep up with the demand. Mm-hmm. So you're still doing all your own production, but you have moved it into a more professional setting. You now have a production team, but you're still, in spite of the fact that you know you are no longer making it in your kitchen, from what I understand, you're still hand pouring and hand labeling everything that goes out. Correct. Yeah. So I have a team of 16 currently, and we manufacture the majority of the product in-house here in California. I have worked with a co-manufacturer when we've had very large orders that have come in, you know, that we've had to turn around 40 or 50,000 units in a month. I have worked with a a co-manufacturer to help us on some of those quick turnarounds for some of the larger retailers. Mm -hmm. But the majority of our products are still manufactured here Everything hand-poured and hand-labeled, like you said. We touch each product with a lot of care and attentiveness and love, and everybody on my team is incredibly committed uh, to, to the product in general, which I feel very fortunate. 
How did you get it finally into major retailers? That's something that I hear a lot from entrepreneurs who are trying to take a consumer facing product to market. You know, competition is so fierce for shelf space and just, you sure. know, convincing some of these larger outlets that you do have the wherewithal and capacity to fulfill their orders and, you know, take a chance on you. How did how did you manage that transition? Well, a lot of persistence. For many of the major retailers, one of the things that they want to see is that there is a market demand and they want to see that you can be able to meet a larger demand if they have big orders that they're sending your way. So I actually started much smaller. I started working in the gift space and working with sales reps around the country uh, in different sales groups and showing up at the gift, gift shows, trade shows like uh, Atlanta Gift Mart, America's Mart, Dallas Gift Mart, and just working with these single, you know, independent retailers, lots of them just owning anywhere between one and three stores. And I grew my wholesale side of my business that way, starting in 2017 was when I really started that that angle of the business with 30 doors that I was in, independent retailers, and grew that up to about 1,500. Mm. And so, you know, that was that was just chipping away bit by bit and scaling gradually. Um, it was still quick, but it was gradual enough that, you know, we didn't have to turn around and suddenly have a PO of 20,000 units for one retailer. We were, you know, we would have 300 retailers and then we had 500 and then 800. And so we were able to scale that way. Mm -hmm. And then once we had done that, I began showing up at some of the bigger trade shows that major retailers show up at um, natural products. Expo West was one of them. Um, there are others too, where you, where you come face to face with uh, buyers from these major retailers. And you begin to get on the map that it's definitely not an immediate they show up and they fall in love with you typically. You begin to get known as uh, having a, a force in the field, a presence in the field. And so your name gets on their radar. And then oftentimes you have a meeting and then you have another meeting and you're continually sending them products and getting your name in, in front of their faces because they're seeing so many brands at one time. Mm -hmm. We also hired uh, last year, a strategic hire for us was um, hiring our, our first director of sales and business development. And that was one of those things. And I think every, every major move that I've had in my business, I've had to time it so that I've done it just slightly before we needed it. <laughs> and the act of doing that, of getting a warehouse, of you know, hiring my first full-time employee and then bigger things like signing on uh, to uh, with a major retailer or or uh, signing this em employee that I have, this team member that I have, the director of sales. All of that, doing it just slightly before you need to creates the space for the thing to actually happen. Yeah, so that you can and scale so and grow. That, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that move, even though... Um, when we hired him, it wasn't the thing that I, I wasn't behind the eight ball uh, in terms of like, oh man, we're, we're having all of this, this business. I have to hire someone. It was, I feel this growing. I'm feeling the momentum build behind us. I know we are going to need this sooner rather than later. And I know that if I hire this person, it's going to create what I'm looking for to hire that person for. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. 
a lot of the, the big major retailers that we're in talks with right now came as a result of that higher and wouldn't have happened if we hadn't taken that chance. As you talk, it strikes me, from what I can tell, you didn't have any business experience prior to starting Smarty Pits, and yet you have, on the one hand, very strategically and by some accounts, you know, conservatively grown the business so that you didn't go from, as you said, a handful of orders to 20,000 overnight, which can kill a business, right. too much growth. So you, you did that in measured steps. You managed the production growth in measured steps. On the other hand, you were more proactive on some of the other things, like you said, getting a warehouse, hiring a sales and develop business development person, and, and in other areas. So so where did that come from? Is that something that you just seem to have good intuition on? Uh, do you wor- Have you worked with a mentor? Where, where did those kinds of strategic decisions uh, have their roots? I think it's a, a little bit of, of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some, some great mentors, especially in the early days of my business, where I was learning about the ins and outs of what a lot of the lingo meant and um, how to how to talk to people, how to pitch, things like that. So early on, having those types of mentors was a very important element of my growth as an entrepreneur. Uh, but I also, you know, one of the things that my husband has told me um, that he's seen in me as, as this business has grown is that my gut has been something that has served us well, and I have to agree with that. Mm-hmm. It took me a while before I learned to trust it because I didn't have the experience. And then time after time, it seemed like whenever I would listen to my gut and really, really follow through on what I felt was the right direction or the right decision, even if there wasn't, if if it didn't quite make sense to me at the time, um, more often than not, that would turn out to be the best path for us. So I've learned now in, in these later years in my entrepreneurial journey that that is, is one of my most powerful assets is listening to that, that little voice mm-hmm. inside me that tells me to, to go in this direction or to hire this person or to pay attention to the market swing. It may not feel like it is in the moment, but it sounds like you are able, unlike some new business owners, some new entrepreneurs, uh, you're able to find moments of clarity where you can get up above your business and take that 30,000 foot high view of it rather than constantly being in the weeds and putting out fires and every day rolls into the next day. And I'm sure there is some of that, but it sounds like you have found a way or at least committed to making time to take a step back and look at the big picture. Yes. Well, I would say that sometimes it's it's more of a, a tendency for me to stay in that 30,000 foot view. And on a daily basis, I am in the weeds and putting out fires and, and all of that too. But, but I've always been somewhat of a, a dreamer and a visionary. And, and that is where I thrive in my business. And I found the times when I get too pulled into those, the, the detail, the, the little pieces and, and how they all fit together. Um, that's when when things slow down a little bit for us because because that creativity doesn't have room to expand for me. Mm-hmm. So the key for me for that has been finding people that I can have help me in those day to day fires and and helping to 
get all of the pieces fitting together so that I really can stay up above and see all how all of the pieces fit and then work with each of each of my individual, you know, section leads or whatever it might be um, to help take care of the, the minutiae. That's good advice. It's, it's advice that it takes some entrepreneurs years and years, and sometimes they never master that to get out of their own way and let others yeah. take the lead and you do what you do best. Let's talk about cause marketing for a moment. That's something that more and more young companies especially are embracing. You do too at Smarty Pits. Tell us about it. So once we were able to financially sustain it, I knew that I wanted some sort of give back program to be incorporated into our business model. And so uh, in 2018, I connected with City of Hope. They are a world leader in cancer research. They're also the place that saved my mom's life when she had breast cancer. And we work directly with their breast cancer research program. We donate uh, a portion of all of our uh, sales back to their breast cancer research program. And we've been able to raise over $65,000 for them so far through those sales, which has been really exciting. I when we started that partnership, I never could have imagined that uh, that we would have gotten it to this point, and it's just been thrilling to have that uh, be a part of the business model. And then we've also partnered with uh, Breast Cancer Charities of America to donate free deodorant to women that are undergoing chemotherapy and radiation all over the country. So we've been able to donate both product and, and money. In terms of cause marketing in particular, the interesting thing that happened for me that it was a bit of a learning experience because there's a lot that goes into it, you know, large contracts to be able to to be able to utilize. It's a little bit of a benefit for both when you look at it from a business standpoint. Obviously, it's a cause very close to my heart, but they also have to make sure that they're protecting the way that their business is represented, the way that their name is used and all of that. So mm-hmm. so you have to really have a great relationship with the, the organizations that you're working with in order to be able to honor the way that they want to be presented and also to have them present you in a way that does your business justice and respect as well. That's a great point that uh, you're you're starting a, a relationship with these and just as you would with any other strategic business partnership, you have to do your due diligence and make sure that it's beneficial for both and that the it's very clear what the goals are of each partner too. Right. You mentioned a little while ago when you're talking about your startup phase that you got so busy with the deodorant orders that you couldn't keep up with the lotion and some of the other products that you offer. Do you have any intention of bringing them back? Have you brought them back? At this point, I don't intend on bringing them back, mostly because once I became a little bit more adept at the business side of things, I found that the thing that worked for my business was to really have a much more refined message and a a targeted audience. And, you know, each business owner, entrepreneur has to make their decision about how they want to present their business. And for many, many people, that means a lifestyle business is the best choice. And there are large companies that are making that decision as well. So, you know, that's having a little bit of everything. For me and my business, the best decision thus far has been instead to go very focused mm-hmm. and and very deep in our particular um, our particular area. So for me, that means different types of deodorants that speak to different customers. We have 
One's for people that need a little bit of a stronger deodorant. That's our super strength. We have people, deodorant for people with sensitive skin, a deodorant for teens. We do a foot deodorant. I do a cream deodorant. We have travel size. So I've decided to be the brand that's known for deodorant rather than the brand that's known for lots of things. Very focused strategy there. How did you come up with the name Smarty Pits? Love that name. (laughs) Thank you. Well, so it's just one of those things that I've always been a little bit of a punny person. So, (laughs) uh, So I love a good pun. And I was trying to just think one day um, when I was still selling deodorants at, a, at the farmer's market, just trying to think of some fun hashtags that I could put on my Instagram page. And, and so I had a bunch of different puns that I was, that I was playing with. And then Smarty Pits just popped into my head. Mm. And originally I was just thinking of it for a hashtag campaign, just as something that was really funny. But it occurred to me as I was driving home, like, this would actually be a really great brand name. And I had struggled with, when I was selling at farmer's markets, having a really generic, frankly, forgettable name for the business. And so people would always say, like, oh, I couldn't remember the name of your deodorant. It was that that one that I bought at, you know, so-and-so farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And when it occurred to me that this would be a great name for a deodorant, I thought, if this could make somebody chuckle, they're not going to forget the name right. when they go to buy it again. And so I went home and almost immediately called my trademark lawyer and said, I need you to investigate if this name can be used. And if it can, I want you to register an intent to file like today. <laughs> and so that's what we did. So once again, though, I, I love the balance with you. You say you're a visionary and a dreamer and so forth, but you take the right steps to make those dreams concrete and to protect them, especially. So yeah. nice, n- nice balance there. Where can we find Thank Smarty you. Pits products? So uh, you can find us on our website at smartypits.com and on Amazon. On smartypits.com, we also have a store locator where you can put in your zip code and you can find uh, a local store near you that carries us. As I mentioned, we're in about 1,500 independent retailers. So we love supporting our mom and pop independent retailers around the country. We're also available at HEB in the Texas area, as well as in TJ Maxx and Marshalls around the country. Okay, so both in brick-and-mortar stores and online, smartypits.com. Stacia, it's been wonderful having you as a guest today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was fun. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.